It's the 17th of April, 2020. This is the Room Now podcast, and I'm Dr. Jack Cush, executive editor of RoomNow.com. You want to drive a surgeon crazy? Tell him you can continue the biologic throughout surgery. You want to drive a patient crazy? Tell him you're going to do physical therapy instead of a joint injection. You want to drive me Cush crazy? Give me guidelines and tell me I have to adhere to them. We're going to avoid the craziness and talk about the news this week on the podcast. We're going to start with a report about allopurinol and mortality in gout. We have published before that there are papers out there that allopurinol will lower mortality rates in patients with gout. We've also published that colchicine has also sometimes been associated with this. Turns out that there isn't a uniform agreement of this. A recent meta-analysis looked at the risk of um, mortality in, uh, in gout when allopurinol was used. Turns out there was only four studies that qualified. Two were positive, two were negative, and you know what? It just missed being significant by this much. The hazard ratio was 0.80 and the confidence intervals were 0.60 to 1.05, saying that allopurinol doesn't increase mortality. It might could decrease mortality, but the data so far, not so good. Well, one of those studies was like 6,500. The other three studies were like 300 and 200 patients. I think it's a little bit underpowered. I still think there's good evidence that uh, good control of uric acid levels in patients with gout will lead to an overall reduction in mortality. Uh, it's been shown high uh, uric acid levels, higher mortality. Um, those with lower uric acid levels, lower mortality. Um, turns out that uh, our use of allopurinol isn't all that good, as you know. Turns out that all, amongst all gout patients, maybe a third of patients are on a urate-lowering therapy. Amongst all people on a urate-lowering therapy, how many achieve a treat-to-target goal? Not so good, like maybe only 40%. So there are many other reasons why the study is not quite as positive as, as we like it to be. Now, I don't know about you, but I've actually seen a case of chicken gunya arthritis recently. It happens. As you know, there's been a flurry of, of mosquito-borne um, arthritis in the last few years, from Zika to chicken gunya. Uh, and uh, chicken gunya presents... Uh, and, often in confusion with dengue fever, but dengue fever doesn't usually give you arthritis. Chikungunya and Zika could. Acute fever, high fever, polyarthritis, polyarthritis, headache, rashes, a lot of GI symptoms at the outset. The thing is about 60% of these patients are going to settle into a chronic arthropathy that can look just like rheumatoid, large, small joints, symmetric polyarthritis. Well, the people at Johns Hopkins actually Bing Bingham was one of the authors, and they had a lot of other authors from down in the tropics. Can't say I know them as well as I know Bing. Um, and they reported on a retrospective series of 48 patients treated with methotrexate. And while there's a lot of descriptive stuff in the paper and kind of short on actual data, it did look like methotrexate in fairly modest doses, a mean of 9.2 milligrams per week of methotrexate. They had significantly significantly lower uh, functional scores and pain scores in swollen joints. Now, they only gave you single variable outcomes like what happened to the pain score, what happened to the swollen, number of swollen joints, but 
they were significantly less, and that's kind of good news. That's what we did with our patient who uh, presented to us many months after their initial infection in India, and now they're being treated with methotrexate for their rheumatoid-looking, um, seronegative rheumatoid-looking chikungunya arthritis. There's a New England Journal report this uh, last week that talked about the value of um, physical therapy versus intraarticular steroids. Uh, it's, it's a military study, 156 patients. It was a protocol. Patients were randomized to either receive one or the other. Uh, and the outcomes clearly favored the physical therapy. So they looked at a one-year outcome, uh, and, and, and they showed that people were more likely to get better when they were given physical therapy. Another uh, study looking at knee OA looked at the impact of chondrocalcinosis on whether or not you're at higher risk to, do, to need uh, total knee replacement in the future. This is a study of 656 knee OA patients showed that chondrocalcinosis in 14% and a, a similar number, 14%, went on to T, on total knee repl replacement, or TKR. Turns out they're not the same 14%. So having chondrocalcinosis did not significantly increase the odds of needing future knee replacement. The hazard ratio is 1.26, but it overlapped uh, one, so it was non-significant. Slightly higher risk, but not significant. Um, we do know that chondrocalcinosis comes with age. Osteoarthritis comes with age. Knee replacements mostly done in people over the age of 60, but it, it is not a certainty that the presence of chondrocalcinosis will lead to future knee replacement. We've talked in the past about opportunistic infection, especially as it relates to the use of biologics in RA. Well, you know, opportunistic infection also occur in um, kids with arthritis, uh, systemic, not systemic, I'm sorry, polyarticular, usually polyarticular JIA, juvenile idiopathic arthritis. Um, a large registry analysis by PharmaChild and Printo looked at 8,274 JIA cases, identified over 700 uh, adjudicated infections, and 17% of those were classified as opportunistic infections. My goodness, that seems like a lot. What were the most common, you think? Well, strangely enough, it was herpes zoster, um, 66 cases amongst the 8,000. The next most common was TB, 11 cases. And then you're now looking at the, uh, at the long tail, the very infrequent events that included candida, HPV, pneumocystis, and CMV, a few cases. So does occur in other forms of inflammatory arthritis. Now, when we don't know what to do in our patients who have rheumatoid arthritis, like what are the big problems there? Like uh, nodulosis and extra-articular manifestations and ILD. What do you do? Well, you all, everybody always brings up rituximab because it seems like it might be the drug that you can use in patients with those seropositive associated manifestations. Turns out there is no good treatment or effective treatment for the extraarticular manifestations of RA. I like this report because it looked at rituximab being used in patients with rheumatoid vasculitis. Now, I don't know about you, but I haven't seen rheumatoid vasculitis since my fellowship which was like two or three years ago. And um, they found 17 patients in this analysis who had also received rituximab. 17 patients, they had an act active disease score with a BVAS, the Birmingham Vasculitis Activity Score, of greater than four or greater. 
Uh, and these 17 patients, when given standard doses of rituximab at six months, 40% of them achieved complete remission. Uh, and at the same time, six months, 53% had a partial remission, suggesting, yes, it may, in fact, work. Uncontrolled, single center report, a handful of cases, but this may be as good as it gets when trying to study um, what to use in people with problematic rheumatoid vasculitis. Uh, an interesting study came across looking at the influence of immunosuppression, meaning biologic therapy, in individuals undergoing surgery. As you know, it's been looked at in the past, especially in the context of those undergoing hip and knee replacement and whether or not being on biologics around the time of those surgeries changes infection rates or death rates. And there's some positive results suggesting that it doesn't, but there's also some mixed results suggesting it doesn't. Um, so it, that it does cause some of those complications. So in this particular study, uh, published in Annals of Rheumatic Disease, they looked at 10,000 patients undergoing non-arthroplasty surgeries for either um, a heart or, um, I can't remember what the other ones were. But nonetheless, they were non-arthroplasty surgeries and they did not show any increase in either 90-day mortality or 30-day readmission rates when people were taking either a TNF inhibitor or a non-TNF biologic um, within eight weeks of their surgery. They compared these numbers to patients who were on methotrexate within eight weeks of surgery, and they didn't show an increased risk, suggesting that having recently received a biologic would not be a contraindication to having, um, hopefully, uh, important surgery that was needed. In the study, they did show what you're supposed to show, which was if they were on steroids, there was a clear-cut dose-related increase in the risk of these poor outcomes, be the either, either being mortality or readmission rates, where mortality rates were either 40 to 60% higher at 5 and 10 milligrams, and readmission rates were either 26 to 60% higher at 5 and 10 milligrams of prednisone. Don't be on prednisone uh, or recognize the risk uh, associated with surgery if the patient is on surgery. We had a few um, interesting uh, COVID reports this week. Um, I did a report on other systemic involvement in patients with the COVID-19 infection. Obviously, patients present with respiratory symptoms, fever, myalgias, sore throat, um, loss of smell, and, and, and whatnot. But other things can happen at presentation or during the course of, uh, course of illness. You might want to look at this report. It, it does detail that some patients can present with rashes, maculopapular rashes, vesicular rashes, uh, even urticarial rashes that are usually not pyritic, or with GI involvement. Now, while actual vomiting is uncommon, diarrhea, 4 to 25%, LFTs in up to a third of patients, um, nausea up to uh, 20 or so percent of patients, um, GI involvement, not uncommon. CNS involvement, um, there's a lot of talk for those of you who are working in hospitals and hearing about corona patients in the ICU and things that are going wrong. There's a lot of talk of encephalopathy associated with the coronavirus, but yet there's very little in the literature. Well, there are some new reports showing that uh, patients with encephalopathy often have abnormal MRIs or CT scans with evidence of infarcts uh, that are either um, within the hemispheres or cerebellum, but often around the thalamus, uh, and that these are often hemorrhagic. 
There was a report that we put out last week about um, the association of these CNS events and CNS bleeds and infarcts in COVID patients who had bad disease in the ICU on a respirator, developed these CNS manifestations, and they were found to have, what was it, IgA, anti-cardiolipin antibodies, and IgG, beta-2 beta beta glycoprotein-1 antibodies. Um, again, not known if it's causal or casual, um, an epiphenomenal, but it is an interesting uh, thing. And, uh, and I also end with a description of the cytokine storm syndrome, which is a, often a terminal event in those hospitalized ICU patients. Look at all that data. It looks just like um, MAS, macrophage activation syndrome, and hence the treatments are IL-6 inhibitors. And there are studies of IL-1 inhibitors. Uh, and why aren't they using the gamma interferon monoclonal antibody amipalumab, gamafant, or our other therapies we use for uh, MAS, like uh, uh, calcineurin inhibitors or etoposide? Uh, and then you should lastly look at what we put on the, on, on the website this week, which was the ACR COVID-19 guidance for patients with rheumatic disease. This was a uh, North American task force who quickly got together and came up with a tremendous document with, I think, about 30 different um, guidelines for patients, our patients in general, our patients who are being tested, our patients who may have a positive test or you're waiting to test, and then those we, the, who we know to be positive. Uh, I think you should look at that. I think the take-homes from that, from me, were in overall, for our patients, don't stop your biologic therapy, don't stop the steroids, don't lower anything. Uh, again, continue to use what works. Um, and recognize we make the same recommendations for patients who are suspected of having cancer or who do have cancer. We make the same recommendations for people who are undergoing surgery. Um, and again, there's not a lot of evidence that, that discontinuing those drugs makes much sense. Um, I think it's very clear that the thing that is going to hurt our patients most if they are diagnosed with a COVID infection is if they have uncontrolled disease and if they have other comorbidities known to increase risk, such as age, diabetes, chronic lung disease, and chronic heart disease. Uh, for instance, in, in the previous paper talking about chronic um, or heart disease associated with the COVID-19 infection, it turns out that patients who have pre-existing cardiovascular disease often do worse. They tend to have worse overall outcomes, presumably because their hearts are involved with inflammatory disease and it just gets worse in the state of inflammation. There are cases of acute myocardial damage in the form of myocarditis or cardiomyopathy associated with uh, a corona uh, infection. Um, but it turns out that, again, um, I, I think our patients who are going to get in trouble are likely to have heart disease and lung disease more so than our disease. What seems to be odd to me is that we're not seeing more of our supposedly immunosuppressed patient taking supposedly immunosuppressive drugs in the ICU or being hospitalized or being severely affected by this pandemic. Um, I think we should use our drugs as we always have used them. I think the uh, guidelines did were smart in addressing the issue that if we develop a shortage of medicines, 
Um, there are other medicines to choose. So if we develop a shortage of hydroxychloroquine, you can switch to chloroquine. Or you can switch to azathioprine it's for, if it's for skin lupus. Or you can switch to another DMARD if it's for the management of rheumatoid arthritis. Same thing for the IL-6 inhibitors. If they go into short supply, you can either switch to the subcutaneous version of those drugs or switch biologics uh, for the time being. You should also reevaluate whether the patient, in fact, needs those drugs during the period of shortage. Now, the last two things on these guidelines that I found a little bit debatable was that when treating stable patients following a SARS-CoV exposure and they don't have symptoms, meaning we know they've been exposed, they could either been actually directly exposed or we know them to be positive, but they have no symptoms. The ACR um, task force said you should continue treatment with hydroxychloroquine, sulfasalazine, and non-steroidals, but they say you should stop all others, even though the patient's asymptomatic and has stable disease. I'm not sure what that's about. I'm not sure I agree, agree with that. Um, and, and then they take it one step further. Now they give them the infection. It's a known infection. I mean, why would you stop, let's, let's, before we get to known infection, the patient's asymptomatic with a known exposure. I'm not sure why you would stop. How's that different than uh, an asymptomatic patient who could well be positive and shedding virus, but you don't know because the patient hasn't been tested. We're not recommending routine testing of all our patients at this point. They go on in their last um, address, the last uh, point, what about treatment of uh, patients who have a documented or presumed positive COVID-19 infection? They say you should continue hydroxychloroquine, wait, but stop sulfasalazine? Why? They say you can continue the IL-6 inhibitor if it seems to be appropriate. Otherwise, if you have a documented infection, they say stop everything. That looks good on paper, but recognize many of the drugs that you're talking about stopping here are drugs that have very long half-lives. It's going to take 3 to 12 weeks to get that drug out of their system. By then, they are going to be over this problem or not doing all that well. Again, the detrimental effect of continuing a DMARD an immunosuppressant like azathioprine or mycophenolate, a biologic like a TNF inhibitor or an IL-6 inhibitor, or even a JAK inhibitor is really not known in these situations. We do know those drugs work. If they are really helping patients who are otherwise a mess, I would be in favor of continuing it, but it's obviously going to be a case-by-case -case consideration. Um, again, methotrexate is not Inflam uh, an immunosuppressive drug, not in the doses we use. It's a powerful anti-inflammatory. You can say that about most of the drugs that we use. I mean, do you really want to get your patients all worked up that they're on immunosuppressives and they have the sword of Damocles hanging over their head? It's not true. It's not going to be true. But yet, as much as I might be permissive in my thoughts about methotrexate, methotrexate, like rituximab, clearly blunts um, humor responses when giving vaccines. And maybe that's a reason to hold methotrexate. It's reasonable to hold those drugs, the biologics, the immunosuppressors, maybe methotrexate, in patients who are just admitted to the hospital and therapy is being begun or they're observing the patient. You could be off these drugs for two, three, four weeks and probably not suffer much in the way of a, uh, a decline in their health or worsening of their inflammation, which will add to their COVID problem. Uh, so again, I, I think this is a difficult scenario. I think we're going to learn more as time goes on. 
I could have put in here more information this week about two new reports about hydroxychloroquine, one showing it doesn't work, uh, one suggesting it might could work, but these are preliminary um, uh, pre-releases. I, I need to see the full paper before we start to review those. Look for that in upcoming reports here um, on Room Now. Go to the website, check out these citations and more. We'll talk to you next week on roomnow.com. Take care of yourselves. Make sure everybody is wearing the mask. Where's the mask? I had a mask around here. Here it is. Make sure everybody wears the mask. Yell at people who don't wear a mask. The death rates are just going like doubling every five days. 410, it was 9,000 deaths in the United States. 414, no, it was 45, 9,000 deaths. 410, it was 19,000 deaths. Today, the 17th, it's over 28,000 deaths. It's gigantic, and yet people are walking around without a mask. You need to leave. Take care.